And you guys may be seated once more. And for those of you that are taking our children, your children back into the children's ministry, we run that through uh, first grade. You are more than welcome to take them back there now. But for those of you whose kids stay in the service with us, we love having children in the service. We do not mind the noise. There is a uh, a worship guide that they can, um, uh, kind of a companion guide that they can use as well to go along in the service uh, with us. And so uh, they are most welcome to that. Over the last several months, we've been just working through paragra- paragraph by paragraph our um, our statement of faith, and uh, which is the London Confession Statement of Faith that when it was put together, it's taking into consideration all of of God's Word about particular themes of, of, of Scripture, and we've been working through chapter 8, which is, uh, relates to Christ as the mediator, and I'm just going to read quickly paragraph 6 to you. It says this, "...although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after His incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. And so just the the flow of Scripture moving toward the day in which Christ Jesus accomplished our salvation, knowing that both those saints in the Old Testament those in the new, those beyond, uh, to, to us now, we are all saved if we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. So we are saved by His blood, His shed blood alone. His resurrection from the grave is our justification. So a good reminder for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. We are starting this morning chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. And the title for the message is The Rejection of Jesus, on rejecting Jesus. And we're just going to look at the first six verses of chapter chapter 6 and uh, by God's grace see it with eyes of faith. And so let me read the first six verses here. This is John Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He penned these words, right? God's Spirit has preserved these words for us sitting here so many years later. The Word of the Lord says this, Then he went out from there, speaking of Christ, and he came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Verse 4, But Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled 
because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. God, we thank you that not only have you inspired your word, but again, you have preserved your word and that we can trust that we're hearing from you as we read it and as we consider it. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would use it to change us, God. We're going to talk about hard hearts and soft hearts this morning. And Lord, we ask that as your word goes forth this morning, that it would be greeted by those with a soft heart, tender toward you, toward your word, toward your gospel, toward Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we, we, have, we have Jesus in his hometown, right, Nazareth. And, and just by way of reminder, Nazareth isn't the place that Christ was born, right? Bethlehem is the place that Christ was born. But Nazareth is, the, is where he grew up, okay? Nazareth is where Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life before he, you know, goes into his three-year ministry prior to his arrest and his trial and crucifixion and death and resurrection, right? For 30 years, he, he grows up in Nazareth, and he's a carpenter, which in, in those days was somebody that worked not only with wood, but it was somebody that also worked with, with, with stone. So he, he lives amongst these people uh, in, in what really would be considered uh, a small town, okay? A, a, a place that everybody knows everybody. And again, he's living there until around the age of 30. Now, in reading this passage, right, you, you really get a sense of perhaps this internalized identity that, that, that is amongst the Nazarenes, and, and it's summed up by the question that Nathaniel asked of Jesus and that John captures in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 46. Can anything, what, good... Right, come out of Nazareth, right? Certainly the Nazarenes, at least we have according to this text, the Nazarenes didn't think so, right? Now, there's a debate amongst scholars as to whether Jesus visited Nazareth one time or two times during his three-year ministry. Either way, we see that it was the, the custom of Jesus to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And, and that's the setting that we, we have this morning for our text. He's teaching in the synagogue. That's the setting of the rejection of Jesus, okay? And we're going to talk about that more in a moment. But if you're looking at the text with me, and I'd encourage you to do so, right, you get a sense that it's the majority here, that rejected Jesus. It, it, it's the majority that were, and the word used here in our English translation is the majority that were offended by Jesus. And in this offense, it follows a series of questions that are aimed to strike at the legitimacy of Jesus, who he is, right, and his authority or lack thereof to, to actually teach. Right? Where did he get that authority? And this rejection is met by Christ with what was a common saying. In fact, all four Gospels record this saying, which is a prophet is not without honor except right, in his own hometown. Right? Furthermore, we see that Christ could not do any mighty works. Right? Couldn't do any mighty works except that he did a few. Right? Our text ends not with just 
Jesus going elsewhere, surrounding villages to teach, but Mark records for us that Jesus, he was astonished. He was amazed. He marveled at the hard-heartedness of those who were supposed to know him best. Now, there's a few things for us to just kind of think through, perhaps meditate on in these six verses. And if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're following along, again, you can use your parents' worship guide as a bit of a cheat sheet. But the first thing we see is that Jesus, he's a stumbling block to the hard-hearted. He's a stumbling block to the hard-hearted. In other words, we, we see that those who the, the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated, has given a, a heart of flesh, right? We see that promise in the Old Testament. Those that the Holy Spirit of God, when, when He's done that on an individual, the result of that is the embracing and the adoring of Jesus. But, but for those who, who greet Jesus with a heart of stone, Right, his person and his work it further solidifies that stony heart. In other words, he becomes a stumbling block to them. And isn't that the nature of how the Word of God works? Right, we see, for instance, in Isaiah chapter fifty-five, verse eleven, we see this: the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, which means empty-handed. It shall not return to me empty-handed, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The the Word of God, indeed, does not return empty-handed. It accomplishes the will of God every time every time. And in its going out, in the Word of God going out, it either softens the hearts of man or it hardens the hearts of man. And if this is true, and it is, certainly it's true for the Word of God incarnate, right? The Word of God made flesh, the final Word of God. Who's who? Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, I want us, just using our text this morning, to see two ways in which Jesus is, is, is a stumbling block for those with a hard heart. And then, and then I'm going to conclude that this first point. So if you're following me, I, got, I don't have two points. I have one point with subpoints and then a point two. But, the, um, but I, want to, uh, I want us to look first at two ways in which Jesus is a stumbling block for those with a hard heart. And then I'm going to conclude the first point by just bringing attention to, to one common characteristic, if you will, of, of those with a hard heart. And so the first is this, okay? The authority of Jesus is a stumbling block for hard hearts. And the authority of Jesus is a stumbling block for hard hearts. Look back at verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands. We, we see the authority of Jesus as a constant theme, especially as it, as it relates to, to his teaching, right? Back in Mark chapter 1, if we can remember that far back, we see in verses 21 to 22, speaking of, of, of Christ in kind of these early days of ministry, it says, then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, speaking of Christ, entered the synagogue and talked 
and they were, the people that were listening, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having what? Authority, not as the scribes, not as the scribes. The the teaching of Christ, it was different than that of the religious leaders of the day, right? He taught as one who had authority, and that authority is not one delegated to him by a creature, right? The authority that Christ taught with was not given to him by a creature. Christ wasn't a rabbi in the traditional way. In other words, he didn't go to seminary, if we want to think of it like that. He didn't go through the process of getting credentialed. He, he didn't have rabbis who tutored him and sought to give him um, legitimacy. Right? That's one of the reasons for the questions that we see the people at the synagogue and apparently throughout Nazareth ask as it relates to Jesus. Who is this man? We know him. We know him. He's a carpenter. He's not a rabbi. He's a carpenter. He works works with wood and with stone. Yet the authority in which Jesus taught, it was superior. It was superior to that of the religious leaders of the day, right? Here again, the second part of just verse 22 of chapter 1 of Mark, right? He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, not as the scribes. So, so the authority of Jesus was a component of his teaching that was unnerving to the hard-hearted, right? That wasn't how things were supposed to be from a worldly vantage point, right? Somebody so lowly wasn't supposed to be authoritative in their teaching. Jesus was a problem. Secondly, How Jesus applies Scripture is a stumbling block for hard hearts. How Jesus applies Scripture is a stumbling block for hard hearts. Christ taught from the same Scriptures, right? What we know of as the Old Testament, right? He taught those Scriptures. He taught from those because they, like the New Testament, they were God-breathed and they were God-preserved. But look with me in the Gospel um, of Luke because I, I... I want to show you, just give you kind of an example of how Christ applied the Scriptures, okay? Because His application of Scriptures, it it was different from that of the religious leaders of the day, right? So it wasn't just that Jesus taught authoritatively, right? It was also His application, which... You know, it's it's application that gets you in trouble as a preacher anyways, right? But it was his application that that was also a stumbling block. But look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 for a moment, right? It's here here that we either see a a previous visit to Nazareth, or this was the same visit, but it just kind of happened earlier on than what we see presently. Starting with verse 16 in Luke chapter 4. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, right, where he'd been raised. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those 
who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, they were fixed on him. He had their attention, right? And he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Don't let the significance of that last phrase be lost on you. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right? Jesus told those in the synagogue that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter, one of their beloved prophets. He's the fulfillment of what one of the beloved prophets prophesied about. Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. Right? Jesus is saying that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Right? That the spirit of the Lord has anointed him, that he is the one that preaches the gospel to the poor, that he is the one who was sent to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to those enslaved, to give sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to say, to preach that the atonement has come, the acceptable year of the Lord. That, this is application. This is application. Jesus is applying the Isaiah passage to himself, right? The people within the hearing, they were waiting. They had this long-awaited-for Messiah. Who is it going to be? Right? We had these preconceived notions of who it was going to be, how it should have gone down. And here's Jesus in the synagogue from Nazareth, sitting in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he says, I'm the fulfillment of this. What you've waited for has come, and he's among you. Right now. Now, how do the people respond? How do they respond? Look down at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Anger in their hearts, seedbed of murder. They intended to kill Jesus. Of course, we know, right, if you're familiar with that passage, Jesus frankly disappeared, just kind of mysteriously passed through the crowds that were trying to kill him, and he escaped. Now, I read this passage to you because we have every reason to believe that this is how. Jesus taught in the synagogue in the text that we're examining together this morning. He worked through the Old Testament passages, and he demonstrated how he's the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. And this was scandalous to the hard-hearted. It was scandalous. In fact, the Greek word that uh, is used in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that translates into our English as offended when it says they were offended at him, offended at Jesus, the Greek word is scandalizo. What do you hear when I say that word? Yeah. The way Jesus applied Scripture, it was offensive. It was scandalous to those who were hard-hearted. So we see in the teachings of Jesus, both that he had authority, right, and that he applied Scripture in such a way that proved him to be our Messiah, proved him to be our Lord, right? Christ, he wasn't ambiguous about who he was. 
Right? People didn't try to kill Jesus because he was nice. Right? That's not why people tried to kill Jesus. Right? People didn't try to crucify him because he was healing people. No, people despised him because as John records for us, Jesus claimed equality with God. John 5, 18. Jesus claimed equality with God. And as Christians, we confess that Jesus is God, don't we? That's our, our confession, right? That he's the second person of the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed, a creed that all members of Deer Park Fellowship confess, says the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet they're not three gods. There is but one God. Now, in keeping with looking at how the hard-hearted rejected Jesus, we should note the excuses. We should note the excuses. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Hard hearts like questions, but not answers. All right? Hard hearts like questions, but not answers. Verses 3 and 4 here. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But, he said, a prophet, but Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, I've said this already, but it's crucial to understanding just this line of questioning. Right? The authority of Jesus is in question here. Right? That's why the vocation of Christ is brought up. He's just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. He's not, he's not credentialed. He hasn't gone through the proper training. But also notice that he's here called the son of Mary, which is interesting. He's called the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, which in Jewish tradition would be the proper way to identify the lineage of Jesus, wouldn't it? Using the father. Yeah, this could indicate that Jesus was viewed as a child born out of wedlock. Right, that he, in fact, wasn't the son of Joseph, but Mary's son only. So not only did Mary endure the whispers of scandal while being pregnant, but this could have been a stigma that followed both Jesus and Mary for their entire lives. Right? In the eyes of the Nazarenes, perhaps Jesus was seen as, this is an, he's an illegitimate child. So even the framing of this question is condescending. Don't you know that Jesus is Mary's son? It's Mary's son. And this series of questions, right, again, it, it seeks to strike at the authenticity and the, the, the credibility of Jesus and his gospel. And Jesus, again, he responds to them by saying that, common, that phrase that was perhaps common during that time, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Now, a common characteristic of people that reject Jesus, right, his person and his work, is a sort of antagonistic questioning, the, the type of questioning that can be condescending and certainly a line of questioning that isn't interested in answers. And, and, and this can be tricky at times because questioning can sometimes fall under the guise of, keeping an open mind, right? And we all want to be open-minded. G.K. Chesterton, he said of one who perpetually has an open mind, right? One who doesn't truly want answers. He says, merely having an open mind 
is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And Chesterton also is famous for saying, don't have such an open mind that your brains fall out. Um, But I... I've sat with people who have lots of questions, and, and, and don't get me wrong, questions are good, questions are, not, questions are not bad, but there's a difference between sincere questions, right? There's a difference between sincere questions and slanderous, argumentative questions, right? Questions that are asked in order to engage in strife, or frankly, to, to slander, or even to deflect from simply obeying the gospel of God. So what do we say to the heart of heart? If you're sitting here this morning and this perpetual asking of questions and refusing to come to conclusions describes you, what are you doing this morning? What are you doing? Obey the call of the gospel. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins. Walk away from your disobedience. And in doing so, turn to Christ who alone is your Savior, who is the only way to, to, to have peace with God, right? Jesus said of himself, quote, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me, right? You have to come to God through Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the exclusive way to be made right with God, and you can come to him, Right, as your sufficient Savior. You can come to Him knowing that you can find forgiveness for your sins. Come to Him. Bend a knee. Leave behind your misery that is your sin. Which gets us into the next thing we should note of this passage. Miracles are not the remedy for the sin of unbelief. Miracles are not the remedy for the sin of unbelief. And yes, unbelief is a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin by which every other sin springs forth. It's a sin that condemns, according to Romans chapter 1. A common saying of of Augustine, one of the church fathers, was that unless you believe, you will not understand. Unless you believe, you will not understand. In other words, if you reject what the Christian faith calls true, you won't even bother yourself to, to understand it, right? Who, who cares? Who, who truly cares about that which is not true, right? I think we have evidence of this way of thinking and how those in Nazareth were talking about Jesus. They refused to believe, therefore they did not seek understanding. They were settled in their unbelief. The questions that they did ask, they did so to discredit and, and listen, right, the, the questions were irrelevant that they were, they were asking, right? What did they have to do with anything really except to try and cause doubt and to cast a shadow over the person and work of Jesus? But look back with me, verses 5 and 6. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. Again, before we, before we even get to these particular verses, we, we come knowing how hard-hearted those in Nazareth were, right? It rivals that of some of the religious leaders that Jesus 
was encountering, right? They ex- exhibited such a rejection of Jesus that he marveled at their unbelief. There are only two times in Scripture that we see that Jesus marveled or was astonished or was amazed. One of them was at the faith of the centurion, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, and the other one is here. It's here. The unbelief exhibited in our text by those in Nazareth who watched Christ for 30 years, it's, it's truly sad, isn't it? Right? It's demonstrative of an unbelief that made the Son of God marvel. Marvel. It's a rejection of what's plainly obvious, what's right in front of them, what they can even see with their eyes, which is a characteristic of what Paul calls suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Right, and it warrants the wrath of God. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right, when someone is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they refuse to see what's true and what's beautiful. They ignore and reject what's right in front of them. Matthew Henry says of those in the synagogue here, he says, They studied to disparage him and to raise prejudices in the minds of people against him, notwithstanding. All this wisdom and all these mighty works shall be of no account because he had a home education, because he never traveled, because he has never been to the university or bred up at the feet of any of their doctors. Everybody has a bias. Right, we, we fool ourselves to think that we come to anything without some sort of bias or some sort of preconceived notion. Right? And those we see in our passage this morning, they, they come with their skepticism. Right? They come with their unbelief, perhaps even their jealousy and their pride. Maybe they wanted to be God in the same way that Satan wanted to be God. Right? But they came with a looking at things through this grid of a a settled unbelief, right? That's how they looked at Jesus. And they see the wisdom of Jesus, according to our text. And they even see, according to our passages, mighty works. Let's not forget that. So is mighty works, right? One of the questions they asked in verse 2 is, how are such mighty works done by His hands? That word mighty works, it means power. It means miracle. It can also mean supernatural being, How are these mighty works done? So they're not ignorant of the miracles of Jesus. They saw miracles, yet in their unbelief, they rejected him. They rejected him. That's the power of unbelief. It's the power of unbelief that all men will be held accountable for. And again, they use a bunch of condescending questions to disparage him. And this is nothing short of bearing false witness, right? They see the wisdom of Jesus. They see the authority of Jesus. They even see the miracles, yet they reject him as Messiah. They reject him as God, and they say of Jesus, he's not God. He's not Messiah. Join in on this conclusion with us, right? They were trying to kind of get the the mob all worked up there, right? And as a result, we see our text say that Jesus laid his hands on a few sick people, but for the majority, Jesus was unable to do mighty works. Now, 
This doesn't mean that the power of Jesus is at the mercy of sinners. Right? That, that would be a wrong conclusion to come to, and it wouldn't hold weight when we compare it to the rest of Scripture, would it? Right? The power of God is not shackled by man. The creature is not the source of power for the Creator. Right? We just worked through Mark and saw Jesus healing a man possessed by many demons. And Jesus, he didn't ask the demons for permission to perform a miracle on the man that they possessed, right? They instead, they came and they trembled before their maker, didn't they? Furthermore, in the passage itself, we see again the authoritative nature of Christ and that his authority was evident in the way that he taught and the way that he applied Scripture. So how should we interpret Jesus not being able to do mighty works? This passage, rightly understood, it should signal to us the purpose of miracles. It's the purpose of miracles. The purpose for all of the revelatory gifts in Scripture, they weren't just a mercy to sufferers, but the miracles authenticated the gospel of God. In other words, the miracles were subservient to the message as Je- that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. In other words, they're not the headliner. They're not the headliner of Jesus' person and work. They served to advance the reality of Jesus as Messiah in those early days. And in our text, because of unbelief, there was almost this universal rejection of God's gospel, of Christ coming to save sinners in Nazareth. And at this stage in his ministry, this was even the case with his siblings, they didn't come to faith until after the resurrection of Jesus. So where the gospel of God and unrighteousness is suppressed, is rejected, there's no need for the servant of the message. There's no need for the miracles. One commentator says it this way, miracles may pique the curiosity of seeking people, but when faced with the unexplainable, a hardened heart will make up whatever excuse is necessary to avoid submission. And that's what we see here. They already saw miracles. They already saw miracles, and they still sought to discredit. But at the end of the day, right, what we really see underneath it all, right, when the lights are off, no one's home, it's just, what, what, what does this boil down to? Right? It boils down to a refusal to submit, a refusal to bend the knee. And isn't that the case with every rebellious heart? It's the case with every rebellious heart. It's our pride. It's our clinging to our pseudo-morality, our unwillingness to let go of our stuff, holding on to things too tightly, our idols that keep us from seeing Christ clearly. People may seek to make arguments like what you see in our passage this morning, but at the very root, when you get down to it, they simply do not want to submit. They want to be in charge. They want to be the boss of their own lives. And that's a sin that takes us all the way back to the garden, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, the serpent said to the woman, you'll you'll surely not die. For God knows in that day you eat of it, right? Eat of the forbidden fruit. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil, right? We go to the Lord in prayer. God, I pray and ask for humility. That 
you would, by your Spirit, overcome hard hearts. God, that if there's someone here this morning that hasn't submitted, hasn't obeyed your gospel, Lord, that they would hear that call this morning, forsake their sin and trust Jesus. And Lord, help us this morning as Christians to see the ways in which we just how the, at the root of every sin, Lord, is ultimately just this rejection of Christ, God. Help us to repent of that in the way in which we live our lives. And help us to see Christ more clearly. Help us to be thankful for who you are for us in Christ, God. So humble us. Draw us near to yourself. And we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.